The terrorists themselves had been told that the Brits would cave in to all their demands in 24 hours, 48 max. What they didn't realise was that they were in a Special Forces theme park. The day that the British Army's Special Air Service, the SAS, came into public knowledge. At the Iranian embassy in London, when 26 people were taken hostage and held for six tense days. Shots were heard at two o'clock, again at seven o'clock. Just after seven, a body was dumped on the front steps. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. We're very honored to welcome back today's guests, Pete Winter and Sekanaya Tak Takavesi, members of the legendary top secret British unit called the Special Air Service, or SAS, often referred to as the Regiment. Founded during World War II, the SAS is the world's first modern special ops unit focused on counterterrorism hostage rescue, and covert reconnaissance. The SAS became the inspiration for special operation units all around the world, including U.S. Delta Force and the Navy SEALs. Most people weren't even aware of the unit's existence until the operation Pete and Tak are going to talk about today, the highly dramatic, daring, and successful hostage rescue mission known as Operation Nimrod that took place at the Iranian embassy in the middle of London on May 5th, 1980, and was captured on live TV. Pete and Tak were two members of the brave SAS assault team that raided the embassy and rescued the hostages. They're today's heroes behind the headlines. On the morning of uh, Wednesday, the uh, 30th of April, we were all in what we call the killing house, which is a general purpose range where you can fire live ammunition 360 degrees, not just straight down the range. You can fire it at any angle apart from through the door. So it's very good for room combat. So we were all in, in the um, killing house uh, practicing room combat, you know, double tap, paste up, Double tap, double tap, paste up, lights out, oh, tedious stuff. Hour after hour, range uh, practice, hundreds of rounds expended. When all of a sudden, the uh, the pages went off that we carried on our belt, and the readout was 9999, the code for a live operation, the real thing, wow. not a drill. Yeah. We all went, whoopee. Yeah. <laughs> Keep the, the paste pots into touch. How much of your time before that was spent uh, training like that and, and how much of it was spent on operations? Well, we normally trained uh, up to to standard. Okay, and every day we make sure that uh, our weapons are ready, zeroed, ready for any actions. Eh? So we always on standby. And that means that uh, all our kids are packed, ready to go anywhere, any part of the world. Eh? So when the alarm came, uh, get ready, so which means that, uh, you know, we should be within half an hour, we should be leaving, leaving Hereford and going towards London. Eh? OK. And how uh, were you how were you organized? Were you organized in teams? How many men per team? Yeah. How did that work? Yeah, we had two two teams, red team and blue team. 
approximately um, 25 guys, yeah, two teams, yep. And all the gear is laid out ready on pallets, what we call pallets. So you can, you know, once the balloon goes up, you know, your pager goes off and it's a live operation. You grab your gear into the operational bags, load all the operational gear into the Range Rovers and off you go down the, down the motorway to London for you know, a war. Before, before, oh, we, war. before we do all that, the first thing we do is check communication. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. To make yeah. sure we can talk to each other. Right. And you have personal radios? Every okay. person has his own radio, yeah. Okay. So at that time, I remember there were a lot of hijackings, plane hijackings and so on. When you first got the alert, what, what crossed your mind? What happened was we had a, a guy called Dusty Gray who was XD Squadron, um, SAS, and he was out of the Army and he worked for the Met Police down at Heathrow on the hard dog section. And he heard on the police net that uh, a siege had gone down, Iranian embassy. So he simply uh, picked up the phone and rang up Colonel Rose, Colonel of the SAS, as you do. And he said, hey, Mike, siege gone down, Iranian embassy, London, get the boys together. There's um, work to be done. And of course, so we knew all about it. And that was 11.50 that morning. Not, not long after they took over the embassy. So so we were on, on the go from 11.50 and we knew, we knew that, thanks to Dusty Gray, we knew that um, it was a uh, an embassy that had been yeah. hijacked. Okay, so you jump in your Range Rovers. Range Rovers, yeah. And you head towards London. Yeah, straight down the M40, the motorway, yeah. Okay. Fast race to yeah. <laughs> okay. When you get to London, where do you go? Straight to Regent's Park Barracks, which was about um, three miles from the incident. Okay. And the incident, the embassy, uh, I understand it was right across from Hyde Park, right? Right in, in Kensington, the embassy. Yeah, that's right? correct. Yeah. Okay. Right across from Hyde so, Park. So you're just a couple, you're just three miles away. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and what happens? You start getting brief on what's going on there and, and what do you hear? Well, no, we have a set drill. As soon as you arrive, you unload the gear, set up shop, and that becomes the initial holding area. And the first thing you have to do is plan the IA, the immediate action. This is an emergency drill in case the resident psycho goes off medication, crashes through the split and starts killing hostages as we're unpacking. So that's what we do. It's a set drill straight into the planning of the immediate action. Is okay. that right, Tom? Yeah. So you're prepared right away in case they just start going crazy and killing hostages. You can break it, burst into the embassy and, and save as many people as possible. Oh, yeah. Within, within that, um, the, the immediate action must be completed. The plan must be completed within one hour of arrival at the uh, initial holding area, which was Regent's Park Barracks. And so you're briefed about the situation at the embassy constantly, I would imagine, right? No, once we get into position, okay, the, the intelligence officer normally comes and brief us straight away while we're getting changed, okay? Sitting down, getting ready, checking a weapon, getting the comms and everything, make sure everything works. What, what do you know at that point? Do you know how many uh, terrorists there are? It, well, what made it simpler, Ralph, 
three members of staff when they heard the gunfire because when these guys burst in these terrorists burst into the uh, the embassy they fired a burst of uh, nine millimeter rounds into the ceiling in reception and three of the members of staff heard the gunfire and they were they jumped straight out of the back windows so they escaped so that and they they were found and brought to Regent's Park Barracks. And that's where we got a lot of the initial uh, information from. These three uh, members of staff who did, in fact, escape. Okay. And what did they tell you? Uh, well, they told us that um, there was 26 hostages, uh, 23 members of staff, uh, PC Trevor Locke, who was security, and there was two uh, BBC guys who just happened to be in there collecting visas for a trip to Iran. And they got caught up in the whole event. So there was 26 hostages. They didn't know exactly how many terrorists. Um, they thought there was maybe four, maybe five terrorists. But they knew they were armed because they heard the gunfire. Um, they also knew that the, uh, or we found out that the, the terrorist leader, his, his name was Salem, and he'd issued uh, a set of demands. He demanded that um, 91 political prisoners be released from jails in Arabistan, which, which is a, a province of Iran, uh, put on a plane uh, from Tehran to London. And all this had to be in place by 1,400 hours that afternoon. On April 30th, 1980, a group of six armed men stormed the Iranian embassy on Prince's Gate, South Kensington, London. They took 26 hostages, including embassy staff, several visitors, and a police officer who had been guarding the embassy. The hostage takers were members of the Democratic Revolutionary Front for the Liberation of Arabistan, Iranian Arabs demanding the establishment of an autonomous Arab state in the oil-rich province of Khuzestan in southern Iran. According to the group's leader, Awan Ali Mohammed, a.k.a. Salim, their plan was inspired by the takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Iran and the seizing of 52 U.S. hostages six months earlier. Salim's second-in-command was Shakir Abdullah Radhi, known as Faisal. The terrorists were aided by members of the Iraqi government, headed by Saddam Hussein, which would soon launch a war against Iran. Prior to 1980, London had been the scene of several terrorist incidents related to Middle Eastern politics, including the assassination of the former Prime Minister of Yemen and an attack on a bus containing staff of the Israeli airline El Al. The British had had enough, and the SAS were standing by. No pressure then, Ralph. No, no. pressure. <laughs> so just another thing is uh, once we have been briefed before and we get updated all the time, okay, any new information comes in, is passed on to us to make sure everybody understands the, the updates. Eh? Every time there's another one come in, they let us know straight away. But we are ready to go. Within 10, 15 minutes, we are ready to go. So I assume somebody immediately like pulls a plan of the building, right? So you understand how to access it, where the windows are, where the doors are, and and so on, right? And you well, start... another another big break we got. Um, mm -hmm. We found out for one of these guys who had escaped initially. He told us, "Hey, man, the uh, 
caretaker of the building is not in the siege. He's on bank holiday weekend leave. So we found him, got the address off this guy. We found him, brought him to Regent's Park uh, Barracks, um, debriefed him. And his information was absolutely invaluable for a plan because he'd been cleaning that building for, for years. He knew every nook and cranny, knew all the emergency exits, knew all the fire exits, size of rooms, obstacles, lifts. He knew everything about the building. It was absolutely great piece of luck that we got hold of him. But the best bit of information he gave us, he told us that the ground floor windows at the front and the first floor windows at the front were armoured glass, two inches thick. Uh, and behind the, the wooden door at the front, the, the embassy main door at the front, steel barred security gate wow. locked. Wow. So yeah. the first the, the first IA that we had planned up and running within one hour of arrival was to jump into the Range Rovers with ladders, roar down to the front of the embassy, smash our way in through the ground floor windows, smash down the front door, dive in, guns blazing, giving it the Wild West show. Not going <laughs> to happen. Yeah. Not yeah. going to happen. Not going to get the, in um, those front doors. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, sledgehammers would have bounced off the... Um, armored glass and well let's not go behind that front door because of the steel barred security gate and of course then we then replanned the ia using explosive entry and thermic lands great bit of kit thermic lands knife through butter watch those steel bars melt you know? <laughs> so but so that, you're you know you're in the staging area you never leave right you're there throughout the whole siege Correct. No, 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 this yeah. is where it gets complicated. Uh, well, not complicated, but this is where the plan tightens up. After we got all this information from these three um, uh, members of staff who escaped and, and the caretaker, we thought, we got to get up close and personal. It's no good roaring down from here three miles to do the job. Uh, so at, at the end of play on, um, it was a thurs Thursday, Thursday, the 1st of May, the end of play, we decided we'd get up close and personal. Um, we'd get into the, uh, into the back door of number 14, Princess Gate, which was next door to the, the embassy. We'd get in, into 14, Princess Gate, which was the Royal College of General Practitioners, yeah, as I remember. Okay. And uh, we, we set up shop there, right wow. next door. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Knock, knock, who's there? SAS. Yeah, yeah. Scandinavian, airline, Scandinavian <laughs> airline services. We've come to transport you to paradise. Your yeah, yeah. fight awaits you. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, we were right next door for the so whole. You, when did you move? You moved it right away the next day? Well, the next day, you know, we arrived there in the early hours of uh, Thursday, the 1st of May. And uh, uh, end of play, 1st of May, we moved up next door. And, and outside the embassy was like a whole scene, right? There's protesters, there's news people, because this, this is happening right in the middle of London. Yes, behind, the, behind the, the, the brick wall, okay? That's where the protesters were. We were inside the building yeah, by then. Eh? Actually, we didn't, we didn't see a lot of that. It was like being in a submarine. The whole place was closed down, obviously, you know. Right. So we never really saw, I never saw out of the windows, you know. It was all kept very quiet. You know, as I say, it's like being in a submarine because don't forget, the terrorist stronghold was right next door. And so you had to be really quiet. Oh, yeah. As well, right? 
could you hear what was going on in the embassy? No, it's uh, because a lot of movements and, uh, you know, we, we don't really know. We can't confirm it. Not until later. Later, the police, uh, the Met police, uh, they managed to get listening devices in, but that didn't happen until what? Quite later. Yeah, goodbye. Day later, isn't it? Day, day or two later. Uh, initially, we were completely in the dark, but eventually the uh, Met police got these listening devices in. The best one was uh, the bug in the telephone. What happened was we, we cut the, um, the, the tele BT telephone wires so that the terrorists had to accept a police field telephone phone that works off a wire from their their HQ, which was set up down the block. And of course, we put a bug into the handset. A little bug was in the handset. They never found it. And of course, all the conversations and bits and pieces were all being transmitted. Even though the handset was on the cradle, it was still transmitting through the wire back to police HQ, which was a really good and also we we measured off the wire from police hq to the terrorist stronghold covertly marked it off in meter markers so that wherever how long the wire was that it gave you a rough indication of where salem was when he was doing negotiations whether it what floor he was on and uh, whether it was the front or the back of the embassy and it really worked at the end when the uh, balloon went up at the end, uh, the length of the wire uh, told us more or less where Salem was in the finals. And he was there, believe it or not. And that was down to the, the length of wire on the telephone, covertly Fantastic. marked off. Fantastic. So no fancy technology, just no, no, using no, a just... wire of a telephone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the length yeah. of it, yeah. Incredible. So my understanding is that after the first day, uh, they started negotiating with the police. Is that right, Tak? I think so, yeah. Uh, I mean, by this time, okay, we were on standby for 12 hours. So after 12 hours, we change over. So you're going in and out of the building next door, or you're, you're, you're just... Every 12 hours. No, every, every 12, 12 hours. hours. Yeah. Wow. And, and Yeah. What happened was, over in Regent's Park Barracks, in the gymnasium there, they built these uh, uh, full-scale models of the... Of of key rooms, you know, out of um, Hessian and um, uh, wooden frames, you know, just to give you an idea of how big that room was. And the caretaker was on hand there to tell you where the furniture was, obstacles, and also which way the door opens, inwards or outwards. Yeah. Very important when very you're in important. a hurry, you sure. know. Yeah. yeah, very important. So that was done under cover of darkness out through the back of number 14. And then we were taken across to the gym at um, uh, Regent's Park Barracks. And also the abseilers went to Peel House in Pimlico, which was an old um, police training centre. And it, luckily it was roughly the same size as the embassy, roughly 80 feet high. So they under cover of darkness, practice their abseiling skills, abseiling down the back of this uh, of Peel House. Wow. And all the time, the, the hostage situation is continuing. The police are trying to negotiate with the terrorists. And what intel are you getting in terms of the number of terrorists and the number of hostages? Nothing. At that time, uh, we haven't been, confir been confirmed how many people were there themselves, eh? 
but we're still in doubt. And the thing was, it didn't really make any difference, you know? You know, once you're ready to go and uh, you can take on anybody. So literally, it doesn't matter really whether it's five or 10 or six, you know? And, and what what is your gear at this point? Uh, what what are you prepared to go in with? Yeah, at the time, I mean, our equipment at the time was, uh, we updating it all the time. We had body armor, we had uh, no helmet, gas mask, gloves, MP5 with about four or five mags, um, smoke, flashbangs, and, and pistol, which is a re in reserve if your if your MP5 stops, then you use your pistols. Eh? And you said no helmet. No, well, we didn't no, no helmets. No. Why is that? Uh, well, it wasn't. Uh, we've been issued. We haven't tested it, so we just go what what we had with us at the time. Eh? And and I'm, I assume each one of you has specific roles in terms of what your role is on the team, right? Yeah, we work in pairs. Eh? And w yeah. talk, what was your role? Well, we were part of the assault team, so we were ready for anything. Yeah, we were we were tasked in the final plan. The plan changed on a regular basis, but in the updating final, plans, you know, updating plan. But the, on the final plan, myself and my partner, Tack and his partner, two-man teams, two-man room camp, our job, as soon as we got into the embassy, all right, head straight for the um, cellars, and you've got to clear the cellars because you don't know what's down there, you don't know who's down there. And that was, that was our objective, clear the cellars. And this was before uh, anything else could be done uh, in reception. You had to get the cellars clear, and that was my objective and tax objective. To... And, and once we've cleared it, okay, we go upstairs again to regroup with a, with a team. So the, the standoff situation stretches out to five days, I think, right? Six days. Six days, okay. And at this point, your nerves are probably pretty stretched, I would imagine. No, 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 because we, we get used to it, you know, because we've been training training all the time and uh, we can take it, you know. Plus, yeah, but don't forget, Ralph, people like myself and Tack, you know, we, we've seen loads, so much combat in the Middle East, you know, in the Dofar War. Bit of gunfire doesn't put us off. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, we look forward to it. You can't, you can't stop an old war horse trotting <laughs> towards gunfire. So you, you just want you're just probably waiting to get to get the order to go in, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We well, just, the, yeah. the thing is, once you go in, okay, you decide what to do. You've got another partner, and he knows every move you're going to make. He's going to follow through. Okay. If I tap him on the shoulder, it means he got to get down out of the way because I'm going to shoot above him. You know. Yeah. So don't, it works like that. Don't forget, Ralph. We'd been on the team before. This was not the first team we'd done. We'd spent something like the the regiment started these teams in about 1970, 71, yeah, some, something like that. So the anti-hijack team or the SP team, special projects team, as it was called, had been going since uh, 1971. And the amount of training that had been carried out prior to 1980 was... Huge amount of training, huge amount, you know. So, yeah, we were ready to go, fed up with the training. We were overtrained. You know, we right. trained with live rounds all the time. So by the time it came to the embassy siege 1980, we'd done so much training in the killing house, uh, firing live rounds year after year. We were so well trained. 
It was just automatic. Unknown to the terrorists, two SAS squads of 15 men each, Red Team and Blue Team, were present on the site from the first day of the siege. Sniper positions were set up on the roof of a building nearby. Blueprints of the embassy were rushed to the scene and studied, and a plan was drawn up to rescue the hostages. Pete and Tak, assigned to the SAS assault team, were waiting, armed and ready, in the building next door to the Iranian embassy. They listened through microphones that had been drilled through the walls as Metropolitan Police Inspector Max Vernon negotiated with Salim through a military field telephone. Salim demanded the release of 91 prisoners held in Iran and safe passage for themselves and the hostages out of the UK. But the government of Margaret Thatcher refused to give in. Adding to the tension were crowds of supporters of Iranian leader Ayatollah Khomeini demonstrating outside. On that first morning of May the, the 1st, um, we got a, a really big break. Chris Kramer, one of the BBC guys who was in the, in the siege, he, he'd been in Ethiopia uh, on a previous trip, caught dysentery. And he, he, it had a uh, recurrence of the problem, probably down to the stress and the pressure of everything. He was shaking, stomach cramps, dirty in the carpet. So the negotiator... Uh, convince Salem that he must release Kramer because he was in a bad way. He needs to go to hospital. Salem released him, didn't wow. he? Wow. So we couldn't wait to, we put him in a, a private room, debriefed him. We couldn't wait to hear what he had to say because he had all the up to date. He could confirm with his release that now there was 25 hostages, but he could also confirm that there was six terrorists. Up until wow. then, we only thought maybe four, maybe five. But now, Jimmy uh, confirmed, eh? there was confirmed through Kramer that there was um, six terrorists and they were armed with Scorpion submachine guns, 9mm pistols, 3-8 specials and Russian assault grenades. Don't forget, those grenades are frag, not stun. We only had stun. And as, as we all know, uh, shrapnel is indiscriminate. Yeah. So it was so, a very so dangerous that, situation. If they so, let off yeah. those grenades, they, they could just kill yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, all shrapnel. kinds of people. Yeah, but and, but and that that bit of information came out at about eleven o'clock on on the morning of the 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 first of May. So that was our first really good briefing, and from there, bits and pieces started to flow in. Okay, and so where were the hostages and the terrorists located? Was was he able to tell you that, or were they moving around? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he told us. This is Chris Kramer again. He told us that all the hostages were on the second floor and they were all at the back of the embassy, all in rooms 9 and 9A. So we consulted with the caretaker and he described the rooms, uh, how big they were, obstacles, furniture. So that was a great bit of information to start from there. We started to plan yeah. the, the, the proper plan that we would use on the day. So it stretches out to the sixth day, and what happens on the sixth day? What 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 happened was um, Salem's self control finally disintegrated, didn't it? He'd been told by his Iraqi uh, handler, uh, Sami Mohammed Ali, codenamed the Fox, that the siege would last twenty four hours, forty eight max, uh, and here they were, six days later, 
the, the whole operation was being controlled by Sami Mohammed uh, Ali, uh, codenamed the Fox, uh, an Iraqi army intelligence officer, and he was controlling the whole uh, uh, operation. Uh, I don't know where he was, but he he was somewhere in London. Aha. Uh -huh. so he he was the main man. No the kidding. So, so the uh, this is in, very interesting. So the Iraqis were were involved were behind this. Oh yeah, oh yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And don't forget, the terrorists themselves were were trained in Baghdad. They all travelled on Iraqi passports. Um, so yeah, you could say that this was the first skirmish that eventually led to the execution of Saddam Hussein. Right. It was the begin. Probably it was. This was during the Iran Iraq War too, right? Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. They were definitely trained. They were okay. trained by the Iraqis. Yeah. Okay. And and the terrorists were Kurds. Is that correct? No, no. They were the, the terrorists were from Arabistan, which is a province of Iran. Right. Yeah. But they were getting help and direction from Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's very interesting. No, we didn't know until. We, we found out at the later stages, you know, that the they had Iraqi backing, yeah. Wow, um, wow. So they were these guys were trained. They were not just, you know, like a random group of guys who decided to, to, to go off and do do this. Like they, they had plans. They, oh, they yeah. Military well, they, training, yeah. They got, they, they got the weapons into the country through the Iraqi diplomatic bag. And the weapons were controlled by Sami Muhammad Ali, the uh, the fox. They were controlled by him. May 5th, the sixth day of the siege, was bank day in Great Britain, and everybody's nerves were wearing thin. Three days earlier, the terrorists had agreed to release five hostages in exchange for the BBC broadcasting their demands. But since then, there had been no movement on either side. Tensions were growing. The hostages inside the embassy were terrified. Meanwhile, the SAS operators and B Squadron studied a scale model of the embassy and they refined their plans. They divided into two teams, red and blue. The red team would rappel down from the roof of the embassy to the second floor balcony, while four members of the blue team would jump from the first floor of the nearby building to the first floor balcony of the embassy. The rest of red and blue team were tasked to enter the rear of the embassy through the ground floor windows. What he said to the negotiator, he said, what I want now is three Arab ambassadors brought into the mix to negotiate a coach with curtains down to Heathrow and a plane to fly us out of the country. The plane must be uh, staffed by women that includes the pilot and the co-pilot, and he wanted uh, a list of um, uh, pr political grievances broadcast on BBC World Service, and all that had to be in place by 1.30 in the afternoon, of that afternoon, or else uh, he would kill a hostage. Now, the, the police negotiator was Max Vernon. Were, were you in touch with him? Were you talking to him all the time? No, it was through our in people, okay? Through your people, yeah. yeah. We don't see them because we were waiting to on standby. 
I never met Max until about two years ago for the premiere of that film, Six Days. He was actually at the, the premiere of the film. Fantastic. I'd never met him before. No kidding. Yeah, he's an, wow. an 80-year-old guy. Yeah. And there he was at the film. Wow. And I, that's the first time I'd ever met him. Yeah, and he was playing a, an important role. So he's talking to the hostages. They give their demands, and then and then what happens? The Salam said he would kill a hostage at one thirty afternoon if the three Arab ambassadors were not brought into the mix. One thirty ticked over and three shots were heard uh, via the bug in the handset and Salam announced that he killed a hostage. That was it then. No going back now. We had crossed the Rubicon. Um, direct action would have to be taken. But we couldn't go uh, storming in there yet. It could be a bluff. It could be Salam trying to get us to overreact. We had to see a body proof of murder before we went storming in. So we have to wait. And we wait throughout the afternoon, two o'clock, three o'clock. We wait all the way up to about 7 p.m. that evening. And then three more shots are heard. And then the body of uh, Lavasani, I'll think. Yeah, he was the press officer, wasn't he? Press officer, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He was pushed out the front door of the embassy. He'd been uh, shot in the back of the head. So that was it. Proof of murder, the ticket to ride. Colonel Rose took over responsibility of the siege at eight minutes past seven, and we all moved up to the final assault positions to await the code word, road accident. At noon, three shots were fired inside the embassy, followed by loud banging. The SAS assault team was put on high alert. Later that evening, the lifeless body of Iranian press attache Abbas Lavasani was pushed out the front door. British TV cut away from coverage of a snooker tournament to broadcast the recovery of his body live. By killing one hostage and threatening to continue to murder one every half an hour, the terrorist had ended all chance of a negotiated settlement. Prime Minister Thatcher gave the green light and Operation Nimrod was launched. Pete Tock and the rest of the SAS operators heard, go, 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 and went into action. Beneath their carbon-lined nuclear, biological, and chemical suits, they wore black overalls and body armor and were armed with MP5 German-made machine guns, 9mm Browning pistols, and stun grenades. They wore hoods, respirators, and radios with earpieces and throat microphones tuned to a communal network. Their mission was to search and clear 56 rooms on six floors and rescue the hostages before they were killed. 7.26, the embassy was rocked by the sound of the diversionary charge blasting in the glass dome on the uh, second floor ceiling. What we did, we did a roof recce on about day three uh, and we found this glass dome on the top of the second, uh, 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 second floor ceiling and a glass dome. We thought, blow that in, guaranteed entry point. There's so no it's like a skylight type of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. A light well. This was a light well that ran down the center of the building to the the, the second floor landing. So just wanting to forgot uh, while the while the thing, while, while the thing was taking place, the seven four seven were asked to overfly the embassy so they can cut out the, the noises. Eh? Yeah. So they flew a seven forty seven over the embassy yeah. so from they London. Could, yeah. They could plan a charge yeah. on yeah. on the dome. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Because ah. we knew that there was two terrorists that uh, were 
on guard on the second floor landing, you know, patrolling the second floor landing because the hostages were there. Uh, so we knew if we blew in that dome, that glass dome, guaranteed entry point. That once we're in there, there's no stopping us, no stopping us whatsoever. Nobody stops the SAS, and that includes the Russians. <laughs> so, so the the dome gets blown in, and and you guys are are where it's all it's all done simultaneously. Yeah. Okay, when it blows up, we went through the doors, our positions. Don't forget the key the key to success when attacking a building like that is maximum entry points on all floors, and we everybody had been briefed which floor they were going in, which window, so that we could completely swamp the building. And that's so what Simultaneously, eh? Simultaneously. Okay, so which way do you guys go in? Are, are you, do you go in together? No, we, as I said, we were watching the snooker. We were oh. all in the TV room watching TV. There was a snooker game on at the time. We all sat there waiting there, all kitted up, ready to go. And it wouldn't take us two seconds to get out and uh, be in position. Well, we're watching a movie that we're watching a, a game of snooker, world championship, world snooker. championship, <laughs> embassy, embassy snooker, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, we were sort of, uh, although we were watching the game, enjoying the enjoying the, the snooker, but we were all ready to go. So from there, we we came out and took our positions, our group. Okay, when all the bang goes, okay, we just, and, and then go where do you enter the building from? Well, what happened was we were all uh, at the back of number 14, ready to go, lined up. We all knew our jobs. Uh, our job, our objective was to clear the cellars. Uh, as soon as we got the go, 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 that's Hector, the boss, shouting in the earpiece, go, go, go. And we heard the poof. We heard the uh, diversion. And then Good where job. do you enter the building from? Well, what happened was we were all uh, at the back of number 14, ready to go, lined up. We all knew our jobs. Uh, our job, our objective was to clear the cellars. Uh, as soon as we got the go, 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 that's Hector, the boss, shouting in the earpiece, go, go, go. And we heard the poof. We heard the uh, diversionary charge go off. And then we ran out of number 14, he heading for the back door of number 16, hoping that we could blow the back door in and get in through there. We looked up at the second floor and it was in absolute chaos. One of the guys had um, uh, got his abseil rope tangled uh, oh. and he was jammed above the window about, I don't know, six foot, seven foot from the floor. On, on the third floor, eh? Yeah, second floor. Second yeah. floor. Yeah. His abseil harness was completely jammed and there was these flames coming out and his, his legs were engulfed in flames. And there was all these guys about four guys of the team all milling around on the uh, second floor balcony. And I looked up and I thought, it's all going wrong. It's all good. We haven't even, you know, got in there yet and it's going wrong. Those guys on the second floor balcony, those guys should be in now mixing it with the terrorists. The meter's ticking. You know, yeah. where's the surprise now? You know, where's the SAS speed, aggression, surprise? Yeah. So their so lines had gotten gotten tangled up and they couldn't descend all the way down. Well, they, yeah. I think what happened because the fire was so intense and he was trying to cut this uh, upsailing rope eh? and he finally did it and he was kicking from the door out and cutting himself and uh, managed to 
to come through the window, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was quite badly burnt at the time, eh? He was oh, very well, badly imagine. burnt. Wow, that's awful. But he was the he was the team leader, and for for carrying on with the action, once he he had third degree burns all down his legs, Yikes. but he carried on with the action, and he got the George Medal for that, which is a very high award. Wow. Wow, that's like a, a that's like a, a civilian Victoria Cross, you know. Wow! So he, yeah. he cut himself free, and, yeah. and he carried on with the mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, even though he had third degree burns to his legs, terrible then, burns. Okay, so you see this, and then what? All happened? the chaos. That was the, you know. I looked up and thought, "It's all going wrong." Uh, you know, we can't we can't now blow the back door in because don't forget these guys. In, in hanging the, down, uh, right? Uh, hanging down above, above us, you know, on the second floor balcony. What can we do? We can't blow the back door in. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Where's the sledge? Who's got the sledgehammer? So <laughs> the guy had a sledgehammer. He smashed his way in through a, a window over on the right, less likely to be barricaded. And we all followed, jumped in through. And it was, guess what it was? A library. Stroke. Uh, it was. No. I think before that, okay, we had to fight through. There was uh, obstacles that had been put up by the terrorists, chairs and tables and oh, yeah. ladders. Okay, we had to fight our way through there, and we were lucky there was no explosive or booby traps. Eh? Our biggest worry was the booby traps, but we just uh, try and, and uh, maneuver around it, uh, over it, and yeah. under it. Okay, to get through. So we just uh, sort of tend to. Just go on. Forget about the, the the worry. Okay, we said forget about it. Let's move on. Okay, so we managed to get through the through the furnitures above, and we cleared ourselves into the cellar now. Yeah. And what are you hearing above? Is it, it as soon as oh, you go well, in the building? No, no, but there's it... so much. There's so much noise going on, and you can't really concentrate. I mean, we concentrate what we were doing at the time. Eh? Right. But you're hearing gunshots and um, screaming, yeah. and yeah, gunfire, yeah. yeah. stun grenades going off. Um, terrible noise. Terrible noise. But you you just block that out of your mind. You know, you got the battle adrenaline, battle adrenaline, sensational stuff turns us all into Superman. <laughs> you know. Um, Gives me gives me almost X-ray eyes, you know. Um, it makes all your, your senses pin sharp. And as I got to the uh, door of the um, cellars, I opened the door, and there was this big ladder, maintenance ladder, that they slid down the steps. Obviously, they thought like rats we were going to come out the cellar at them, and they put this big these big ladders down the, the steps to block the cellars off. So. No time to think, got to maintain momentum, got to achieve the objective. As I reached down, IED flashed through my mind, booby trap on a pull switch, no time to think, pulled, nothing there. Oh, wow. Nothing there. Wow. Not well, booby trap. Nothing was going to stop us, you know? Yeah. Although we knew the dangers, but we just took the risk. So pulled out, pulled out this maintenance ladder, and I was number one, and I just shouted, it's lighting up time now, boys. So pulled a stun grenade, lobbed it down the cellar. The, 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 the flashes were blinding in that enclosed space down into the cellars. And it was dark too. Dark yeah? too. The flashes blinding. And then we just split up into two teams of two to clear the rooms on either side of the cellars. And off we go. Tax team on, on the right-hand side, my team on the left-hand side. No sledgehammers. 
you know, war on a shoestring. That's before Mrs. Thatcher gave us an open checkbook. Not everybody had a sledge. So it was a case of drilling the locks with uh, MP5. So it was drill the lock, kick the door in, room combat, room clear. Drill the lock, kick the door in, room combat, Flesh room Benson. clear. All the way to the end of the um, the, the corridor, the, the cellars, achieve the objective. There was nobody down there. Job yeah. done. Get paid. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we made our way up to the top, to the second floor. Speed and precision were critical. Blue team, which included Pete and Tock, were tasked with clearing the basement. Red team was responsible for working their way down from the roof and clearing the top three floors. The noise around them was deafening. Explosives going off, bursts of automatic weapons fire, and people screaming. Pete and Tock and the rest of Blue Team laser-focused on their tasks. They had cleared the basement and were on their way up to the first floor. So far, they hadn't encountered a single terrorist or saved a single hostage. Within seconds, all of that would change. Once we cleared the cellars, the next objective was link to up, was link, up. link up, was to link up um, race back up to join the join the rescue basically and at that stage a human chain had formed down the stairs okay we joined the chain and this is so we can control the hostages the hostages have to be controlled they've got to be passed from man to man don't forget we've got gas masks on the hostages don't and there's all this gas smoke cordite it's all swirling round. They're hysterical. Their eyes are streaming. They're, they're, they're in shock. So they've got to be controlled. So you've got to grab them and you've got to push them in the right direction. And that's what we did. They started coming down the stairs, one down, two down. You, you, you went up, didn't you? About halfway, yeah. yeah, yeah. About halfway. Peter, you know, so I positioned myself at the bottom of the stairs so I can cover on my left and also on the right up the stairs. My job was to make sure that all the people are coming down, the women especially, they were frightened, screaming and uh, and running. And, uh, they, you know, we were lucky at the time because when you say something, they believe you and they do what you ask them to do. So that makes it a lot easier for us, you know. So them through from the top stairs down to where I was at the bottom. So you have to control them. Um, you, you, you've got to put, we had to literally push them towards the library. Don't forget we came in through that library. They were looking at the front door, trying to get through the front door. <laughs> we had to grab them. No, it's locked. Because it, who's got the key to the front door? We never found the key. It was locked. Right, right. there's you know, no time. Who's yeah. got the key? So we had to grab them and push them towards the library. And then once they got into the library, they were met by the um, people who... Reception, uh, eh? Reception, what we call the reception people. That, um, yeah. So they're coming down... And then suddenly, uh, there was a guy on the first floor, on the first floor at the top, and he just shouted, this one's a terrorist, this one's a terrorist. I mean, I'll never forget him. Big fella, big fella, Afro haircut, and he had this olive green um, combat jacket on. And he was coming down the stairs in a kind of a, a crouched position, sort of as if he was protecting his genitals, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was running scared. He knew he didn't have long. As he got level with me, 
the battle adrenaline clicked in big time battle adrenaline sensational stuff <laughs> gives me almost x-ray eyes and through the gloom the smoke the x-ray eyes picked up on the um, russian assault grenade in his uh -huh. hand as he was uh -huh. coming down wow he had this uh, russian assault grenade the same grenades they still use today in the ukraine um dangerous frag grenade um and he's got it in his hand he's got it in his hand as he's coming down in that crouched position thought got to do something got to uh, neutralize the threat but i can't open fire because there's people milling tack was in the line of fire other guys were in the line of fire there was hostages belting down the stairs absolute chaos pandemonium can't open fire what I did, I brought the, because he was in this crouch position, you know, really crouched, I was able to bring the MP5 up and whack him right on the nape of the neck, yeah? yeah. But as I did, his, his face turned towards me and I could, you know, I could see the look of terror, the look of hatred in his eyes. And then he just rolled down into reception and yeah. everybody opened fire and tacked. What happened down, what happened then down in reception? So Peter, belted them with the butt of his weapon and the guy yep. started rolling down. So I was right at the bottom of the stairs. I could see the road outside towards the, so they can escape. And also from the stairs. So when Pete shouted, I just turned and the guy was rolling down and uh, everybody turned and fired at him. You know, we did not shoot any hostage at all because the hostage were running down at the time. So we're very careful. And uh, I think I emptied about uh, half of my magazine, 30 rounds, 15 rounds on him. You know, um, you know, he couldn't help it at the time because you had to make sure that he's got no power to to pull a pin out. Right, and thank yeah. God he didn't. Right. Well, that's yeah. what. That's no, what, but there's a luck we had. Eh? Yeah. What happened was, as he as he twitching his life away on the carpet in reception, his his, sort of, his hand sort of flopped, and this grenade this grenade rolled out towards the uh, information desk. You know, the world stopped. Freeze frame. <laughs> can't open fight. Can't can't dive anywhere. Too much chaos. Where's the pin? Is the pin in? This guy had been so unprofessional. He left the pin in. Wow. That was Faisal, uh, Salam's uh, second in command. The last, the last terrorist to die. I think he ended up with about forty bullet holes in him. Uh, not bad, really. But the only problem was. A year later, I had to go to the inquest uh, on the embassy siege and explain to the to the coroner why Faisal ended up with uh, forty nine millimeter rounds <laughs> in him, and yeah. I I had to, I had to tell him. I thought as I climbed up into the witness box, I thought this is a first. It's the first time that, that an SAS guy has been in court to explain his actions. You know, I'm like a guinea pig. You know, yeah. as I got into the witness box. I thought, got to do it, got to explain how this happened, or else who knows how, what spin they'll put on this in 30 years, 40 years' time, you know? Well, the coroner asked me all about what happened, and I said, it's, a, it's an SAS tactic. Everybody opens fire, so there's no hesitation, okay? That is why he ended up with so many rounds. You can't afford to hesitate with a man with a grenade. Of it course not, takes, yeah. You know, it takes a split second to pull the pin from a grenade, you know, and pop it up. Are you going to stand there and go, shall we open fire, sir? Right. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. think so. Everybody opens fire. Yeah. So no, there's no hesitation. If everybody opens fire, there's no hesitation. And that's another SAS secret. 
we can operate without orders. We don't need officers to tell us to open fire. We can make our own decisions. And that's uh, one of the secrets of the SAS, you know. And uh, the coroner, uh, the uh, inquest, he, he took the pitch, uh, gave us a clean bill of health. Good. So he's neutralized and the pins never pulled. Well, that must have been a huge relief to everybody. Oh, absolutely. Of course, yeah. Especially for the hostage and us. Yeah? The hostages right. were probably freaking out and diving for cover and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, in that in that enclosed space in reception, it, the reception wasn't all that big. If that grenade had gone off, I yeah. wouldn't have been. Tack would definitely wouldn't have been here now because he was down in reception and there were hostages milling. A lot of people would have took shrapnel. A lot of people. Okay, so what happens next? So it's now about uh, quarter past eight in the evening. Uh, the whole the whole rescue took about uh, 40 minutes, about the same length of time it took to kill Bin Laden. Um, and this eerie silence descended on the, uh, the embassy. No more shouts, screams, hysterical hostages, gunfire explode. The, ol the only sound was the Met police dogs barking in the street outside. The siege had been busted. The terrorists themselves had been told by their Iraqi handler, Sami Mohammed Ali, that the Brits had gone soft, that the uh, uh, the Brits would cave in to all their demands in uh, 24 hours, 48 max. What they didn't realise was that they were in a Special Forces theme park. <laughs> you played by different rules, yeah. But I suppose in their twisted death cult mentality, it was a good way to go up to paradise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, what we did, well, what did we do then, Tech? Well, we all came back and went back into where all our kids was. You know, back into oh, that's right. Yeah, we all we all jumped in. We had these Avis uh, renter vans, you know, civvy vans. Um, we all leapt into the vans and driven at speed back to um, uh, Regent's Park Barrack. Only 17 minutes after it started, Operation Nimrod was over. Of the 26 hostages originally taken, five had been released and one killed minutes before the assault, one killed during the assault, and the other 19 rescued. Five of the six terrorists were shot dead. The sixth was arrested and later given a life sentence. The SAS suffered just one injury. Third-degree burns to a soldier hurt as he repelled from the roof. As the smoke cleared, Pete Tock and the rest of the SAS Squadron B slipped away in Avis vans to the Regent Park barracks in central London. At 10 p.m., Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her husband arrived there to congratulate the team. A TV was wheeled out so everyone could watch the late news. In the room filled with rugged SAS soldiers sipping beers, one of them shouted out, Fucking sit down, Maggie. I can't see. For a moment, there was an awkward hush. Then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher sat down cross-legged on the floor with the men and watched. We had these big smoke grenades set up. When the assault was going in, we are going to smoke the whole building off so that the press couldn't see it anyway, couldn't take photographs, and all of this, this smoke would just completely blank the front of the the embassy off from the press and the media who were down the end of the street behind barricade barricades 
at the 11th hour, Maggie Thatcher, Mrs. Thatcher, the Prime Minister, said, don't initiate the smoke grenades. Wow. Don't initiate the smoke grenades. And, of course, she wanted on the screen, didn't she? She wanted to show the world what happened if you if you bring your terrorist tactics to UK. This yeah. is what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. yeah. She wanted it on the screen. Smart. Oh, yeah. Very smart. Now, you Go said on, that sorry. one of the hostages escaped, one of the terrorists escaped. Oh, yeah. So what happened was one of the, one of the terrorists escaped, yeah, because of a, a female hostage in a classic uh, case of Stockholm Syndrome. Um, this, uh, this typist, I think she fell in love with Fauzi. Fauzi was a, the youngest terrorist, good-looking guy, a, a ladies' man, yeah? And she, she became infatuated with him, followed him around the building for the duration of the siege. Wow. Uh, she became so obsessed with him that she helped him escape. She's the one that got him dressed up in civvy clothing, make him look like a, um, a student. That's it. She, right. He looked because he was young. Very right. young. Now this woman like, was a. She worked at the. She was a secretary at the embassy. Yeah, she was one of the hostages. She was. She was an Iranian woman, or she was a. British yeah, Iranian woman. Iranian yeah. woman. Okay. Yeah, uh, so she felt a, sorry for this guy, or she fell in, fell love, in love with him. him. I'm sure she did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure she did, and uh, she helped him escape, even when he was being processed on the lawn at the back. That's where all the hostages were laid out and checked, ID'd, processed. Um, even then, she was trying to say, "This is you leave him alone. This is my brother. You leave him alone. This is my brother. Uh, yeah, he's okay. No problem. Unfortunately for uh, Fauzi, he was put down alongside Sim Harris, the BBC guy. You know, who been it. And of course, Sim Harris knew exactly who he was. Sim put the put the finger on him, so he was arrested, dragged off to the um, local Nick." Uh, and uh, I think he got something like twenty six years in jail. He's been out, been out a few, uh, been out a few <clears> years now. Um, the the Sun newspaper exposed him as living in a place called Peckham, which is full of wide boys down there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's got free housing. He lives on benefit, maximum uh, DLA, we call it. <clears throat> so he got us in the end. He got us through our pockets. Yeah. And he's still there now. He's still in Peckham now, living the uh, on on benefit. So how many how many um, uh, terrorists were killed? There were six. So how well, many? Yeah, survived? well, we'll come to that for the for the, for the brief for the after operational briefing. Um, we, we didn't do a, a briefing until later. First yeah. of all, we were driven at speed in these civvy vans, Avis rent vans, back to. Uh, um, they were Avis rent vans. Avis, yeah, Avis <laughs> Rentman, <Renovant>, yeah. <laughs> Back to Regent's Park Barracks and shown into this big um, uh, conference room, yeah. Like a, it was like a Viking drinking den. There's this massive long table ran down the length of the room, piled high with all this booze. Champagne. <laughs> Champagne. Mainly Foster's, Foster's Lager. Wow. You know, Eric Bloodaxe would have been impressed. And, uh, <laughs> so we all cheered. Yeah. We all cheered and got stuck in with a relish. Yeah. Um, best can of lager I ever tasted. And it was yeah. warm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I was on about my fourth can of lager and Colonel Rose, the colonel, put his head round the, the uh, briefing room or the, the conference room door. He said, gentlemen, the prime minister. And in strode uh, Mrs. Thatcher. Like, uh, and Lord Whitelaw. Uh, and, and Whitelaw, the home secretary. 
Uh, yeah. Mrs. Thatcher, she was like a um, a triumphant Caesar returning yeah. to the Senate. She went, gentlemen, yeah. there is nothing sweeter than success. And you boys have got it. And we all cheered and someone said, come and have a drink, Maggie. And she did. And <laughs> Dennis, yeah, they... And then they began to work the room, didn't they? They knew yeah. how to work the room on such a special occasion. Sure, sure. Give it their personal touch. That's, that's what, what they, they did. That's what they Went do. Went around all yeah. the little groups, didn't they? And uh, shook hands with us, thanked us personally. What, did she thank you personally? Yeah, they all did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanked us personally. She got to our little group, <laughs> shook my hand, thanked me personally, thanked the other guys personally. She turned to me and she said, oh, what did you do? before you joined the SAS. I said, oh, I was uh, in the Royal Engineers. And uh, she said, what did you do in the Royal Engineers? I said, oh, I used to drive bulldozers. She said, and now you assault embassies. We both <laughs> laughed at that. Uh, then it came time for the, um, came time for the evening news, the nine o'clock news or half nine news or whatever. And a TV was wheeled in. So Mrs. Thatcher then began began her mother hen bit, getting everybody organised, everybody sat down, everybody lined up, everybody hushed up. Then after the the the, the longest um, news flash in history, which pissed off all the, the snooker fans, which it um, <laughs> broke into the, the, the Embassy World Snooker uh, competition. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher stood up, gave a gave a talk. Short, sharp, and to the point. She said, "Gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, uh, courage, confidence, flexibility. This was a brilliant operation. You made us proud to be British." And we all, we all cheered. She said, "Come and have a drink, Maggie." And she did again and joined us for a drink. And then, as as Tack said, uh, we had a good old drink, uh, and then jumped in the Range Rovers and drove back to Hereford. As survivors of the rescue mission were being treated at the Hendon Police College Medical Center and debris was being cleared from the Iranian embassy, everyone in the UK was talking about the incredible bravery demonstrated by the SAS teams. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher appeared on British TV to thank them for their, quote, superb performance. She said that Pete, Tak, and the rest of SAS Squadron B had made everyone, quote, proud to be British. They had certainly lived up to their motto, who dares wins. Or as Sergeant Pete Winter said at the time, the day will live forever in regimental history, of that we are sure. It was the SAS's finest hour. They not only buoyed the spirits of Brits everywhere, they also bolstered the image of counter-terrorism forces worldwide. For the first time, many people saw on live TV the value of small, highly trained anti-terrorism units. After that, SAS techniques were studied and applied to this special class of warriors all over the world. We thank Pete and Tak for their incredible courage and for sharing their colorful and inspiring story. They're today's Heroes Behind the Headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Please subscribe. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines.